How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, which gives everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that we are to walk by the Spirit. It's a an ongoing relationship, our rapport with the Lord. Uh, it's described by terms as fellowship, abiding in Christ. And as we walk with the Lord, sometimes we sin, we stumble, and so we have to confess our sin in order to be restored to an ongoing relationship, uh, fellowship with the Lord. So we'll give you a few moments to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful we have your word to guide and direct us, to focus our thinking, to help us to understand the priorities of life. We live in a world that is much more complex at times than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and we have a lot of difficult decisions to make. Often we ignore crucial decisions simply because it threatens our job, it threatens our security to some degree, it puts us out of our comfort zone. And yet, as believers, we need to always be sensitive to the fact that we have to stand for the truth of your word, no matter what the cost, even when it may cost us a job, or it may cost us uh, friends, or it may cost us family members. Father, we pray that we might be steadfast, that we might learn to love those who are in opposition to us, but nevertheless, not compromise our values or our views, and always Focus upon your word as the most significant priority in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I've got a couple of questions that have that came in from last week. And I want to address one of them first, and then we'll address the second by way of review. Uh, the first one that came in was a question related to Calvinism. Last week I pointed out some differences between uh, ca- Calvinism, especially uh, more more uh, consistent forms of Calvinism, let's say uh, four-point Calvinism, which is usually called moderate Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, which is sometimes referred to as Dordian Calvinism. A lot of people don't understand Calvinism, and they just think that somebody who's a little, who emphasizes the sovereignty of God and election a little more than they do is a Calvinist, but but are a hyper-Calvinist. But a hyper-Calvinist is actually a technical term for somebody who is a high Calvinist who not only believes in the five points of of Calvinism from the Synod of Dort, but they also believe in uh, supralapsarian Calvinism, which is a a form of Calvinism that says that God decreed the elect before he decreed that he would even create anybody. And a res- one result of that is that hyper-Calvinists do not believe in even doing evangelism because if God wants you to be saved, he will save you without any help from anybody else. 
And that was a popular position among, uh, among Calvinistic Baptists in, the, in England in the 1800s. And when William Carey took the gospel to India and had a tremendous result of people who responded to the gospel, and then he came back. He's considered the father of modern missions. When he came back to England and reported on it, it upset the hierarchy of the Baptist church that was so Calvinistic, and that's exactly what they told him, was, young man, if God wants those people saved, he'll do it without your help or mine. That was their view of of election and their view of of Calvinism. But not all five-point Calvinists are hyper-Calvinists. Not all five-point Calvinists hold to even a strict lordship-type view of perseverance. Of course, one of the key issues in Calvinism isn't just the extent of the atonement, which is what we usually, when you talk to Calvinists or you talk uh, about the difference between four-point or five-point Calvinism, as I pointed out last time, it often comes down to talking about the extent of the atonement. But when you talk about the extent of the atonement, it also presupposes a certain view of election. And the question that came in in relation to election said, well, uh, the, the guy who wrote the question assumed that elect was a term that referred to either Jesus Christ or to Israel. But the term elect is a synonym for those who are believers. Those We don't know who they are ahead of time, so it can only refer to those who have trusted in the Messiah in the Old Testament, the promise of the Messiah, or in the completed work of Jesus the Messiah in the church age. The word is used to refer to the elect in the tribulation, which in, in Matthew 24, 22 and 24, which includes both Jew and Gentile. In Revelation chapter 7, we're told that, uh, that there are among those saved who are martyred and in heaven, there are those from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the term elect in reference to the tribulation does not describe only the Jews. In Romans 8.33, Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There he's talking about church-age believers. In Colossians 3.12, Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. So the term elect is used as a synonym for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I pointed out before, for those of you who remember the doctrine of the magnum bar, remember the word on the magnum bar that, I forget the second word, was baharim from bahar, and it means choice. When I asked my guide in Israel, I said it, it was it was a uh, ice cream bar with almonds in the coating. He says that means choice almonds, not chosen almonds. There's an important distinction between that. So the elect is a term that emphasizes the quality of those who are believers. They are the choice ones of God, and they are those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. So that was an answer to the first question. Uh, we're looking at the conclusion to Romans in Romans chapter 5, verses 14 through 33. And in the last two classes, what I've done is focusing on uh, six different key themes. We've worked our way through the first two or three as of last time. And the first one, 
by way of review, was that like Paul, we should have serving the gospel as the central priority of life. The bottom line here is that when you look in the mirror in the morning, you should be able to say to yourself, my highest priority today is to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be going to work at any number of secular companies, but the question that's important is why are you working at that company in an ultimate sense? You're there for a lot of different reasons, but ultimately we are wherever we are in life to serve the gospel. That's our mission as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I made that point, I was talking about the gospel, and under point three I said the good news, because Paul emphasized that it was the gospel of God, it originated from God, it's good news, I was developing that point. I said the good news is that Christ has paid the penalty freeing every person from the sin penalty, meaning, first of all, that relating it to spiritual death, we're born spiritually dead. We're born lacking perfect righteousness. We're born under the condemnation of Adam's original sin. Now, when we look at the barrier, and I've developed the barrier doctrine in the past numerous times, I'm not going through the barrier. The barrier emphasizes all the different areas of sin and and the problem the problem of sin and its manifestations as well as uh, the solution, all of them going into reconciliation and redemption and all the other salvation words. What I've done here is to simply boil it down to the three fundamental issues to get it to, the, to a simple core issue. And this specifically is to tie it to the issue of, of the atonement. Because the question is, if Christ died for all as a true genuine substitute, as I pointed out last time, then why aren't every why isn't everyone saved? Why is it that some are lost? And that is because Christ's payment for sin doesn't save people. It just pays the penalty, but there's more to the problem than just being under the condemnation of Adam's uh, original sin. We're born spiritually dead because of that con- condemnation when we come into the world we're spiritually dead and we lack perfect righteousness so christ solves the fundamental issue the fundamental problem at the cross and it's solved for every single person and i had a great illustration that was sent to me that i just remembered and i'm going to try to see if i can do justice to it because i thought this was done very very well and that is a a a parable of a landowner playing off of some of the landowner parables in the Gospels. Parable of a landowner, and the landowner recognizes that his, his servants, his workers, have been, uh, have been embezzling funds. And they've not only put themselves into tremendous debt where they're going to have to, um, uh, where they, as they, they've gone into debt where they may have to declare bankruptcy, but they have uh, they they don't have anything. They don't have anything to provide for their families, and they're they're going hungry. So, what the landowner does is he absolves everyone of their debt. But that doesn't solve the problem of the fact that they are going hungry, that they don't have any food in the pantry. It just means that they're all uh, that their debt is paid off. 
but they still have a practical problem in that because they have embezzled the money and spent it unwisely, they don't have any food. So he not only pays off their debt, he gives them food, but they have to come and accept the food. Now, there are among those who work for him, some who are arrogant and some who are rebellious, and they don't want to accept any food from him. They're proud, and they're not going to accept a handout. Now, their debt is still paid off, but it doesn't benefit them because they don't come and accept the gift of food. That's comparable to the gospel. Christ paid the penalty for everyone so that every unbeliever has his sin paid for. But he doesn't want to accept the positive aspect of the, of the gospel. Unbelievers who, don't, who are too proud to accept the gift of regeneration, the gift of righteousness, then they are going to die in their sins. We're not condemned for our personal sins. We are condemned for Adam's original sin. But if we continue in, in sin without uh, trusting in Christ, then, then as Paul says in a couple of different places, we die. And Jesus said it too to the Pharisees, you will die in your sins. And that phrase is basically an idiom for being, you're going to die spiritually dead. And that's what, what we have to understand. So Christ paid the penalty for the condemnation, and that leaves each of us spiritually dead and lacking, lacking righteousness. So at the instant of salvation, the sin's already paid for. That happened historically when the certificate of debt, as Paul puts it in Colossians three twelve to 14, when that certificate of debt is nailed to the cross historically, that paid the penalty. But we don't realize the free gift from God until we trust in him, at which point we receive a new human spirit and an imputation of righteousness and justification. That shows, that by putting it this way, it shows the unlimited dimension of the atonement in that it paid the penalty for all as a true, genuine, actual substitute, but it doesn't save people. And that becomes an issue among some theologians. They'll say, well, did, did Christ die to save you or to make you savable? That's the wrong question. Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. And because the penalty is paid for your sin, then the issue then is what must you do to be saved? So you have to change the question to get it straight. Okay, so the first issue is, is the gospel your priority, the gospel ministry your priority in whatever sphere of life you're in? It can be government, it can be in the courtroom, it can be the you know, legal profession, it can be a ditch digger, it can be a garbage man or a sanitation engineer. It can be whatever you, whatever, wherever you're gifted, wherever God has placed you, he's placed you there not only to perform the work that you have as part of your responsibility to your employer, but that needs to be understood within a broader context of your, your, your spiritual mission uh, from the Lord. The second thing I pointed out last week is Paul's commendation of the recipients. He's, they're commended for their faith, the faith rest drill, three aspects, mis, mixing faith with the promises of God, Hebrews 4.2, 
understanding the embedded rationales within a promise. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 was the illustration I looked at. And third, reaching a conclusion from that rationale that helps to stabilize your emotions, stabilize your mentality so that you can move forward, move ahead in life. We have to practice this over and over and over again because if you just come along and try to do this when things are nasty, you haven't practiced and you're not going to do well. The only thing that gives you uh, real success is perfect practice, and only perfect practice makes perfect. Imperfect practice, you just learn bad habits. So we came to Romans 15, 14 at the end, where Paul commends them because they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge as a result of their being filled by means of the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, and they're able to admonish one another. We looked at that idiom, full of goodness, as a description of their, of their character. That was the, that's the Greek idiom there. Now I'm going to skip through these slides on that verse. So we can get to the third point. Third point that Paul makes is a reminder in this chapter of what he started with in the first chapter, that he was trying to overcome all obstacles in getting to Rome. In Romans 1.13, Paul says, Now, I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, that I often plan to come to you but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you just as among the other Gentiles. Now, Paul wrote Romans on his third missionary journey. We always remember how many, how many epistles did Paul write after his first missionary journey? One. After his second missionary journey, he wrote two. What were they? What? First and second Thessalonians. Is that right? That's right. After his third missionary journey, he's still technically on that journey. He's in Ephesus for two years, and he wrote three. That's real easy to remember. He wrote three epistles, first and second Corinthians and Romans. So this is before he made his way to Jerusalem. And even at the close here, he emphasizes that he is on his way to Rome, but first he has to go to Jerusalem. So he always intended to go to Rome. That was on his plan to go further because, as he will state which in this chapter, which we'll read, is he wanted to go to areas where the gospel had not yet had an impact. He was a tr- had a true pioneer spirit. By this time, it's roughly early 60s uh, A.D., and he wants to go places the gospel hasn't come, that the other apostles had gone out, other churches had sent out other missionaries. He wanted to be in the vanguard and take the gospel places where it had not gone. So on this path was to go to Rome, but Rome was only going to be a stopping point, not an end destination. He wanted to come to Rome. He said he often planned to come to you, but was hindered. Now, it's interesting to speculate as to what hindered Paul. He doesn't indicate Is he hindered because God wants him to go to other places? Is he hindered because other needs, other spiritual opportunities presented themselves, and so he just couldn't get there yet? And I think that's part of it. There's not a hint here that this is something negative, that he's facing some kind of opposition. We're reminded that Paul wanted to go to Ephesus earlier, 
as he began his second missionary journey, but Ephesus was in the Roman province of Asia, the extreme western part of what is now Turkey, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. So he had to go around to the east of, of Asia, and finally he came out on the on the uh, Aegean and crossed over because it was the Lord's uh, Lord's guidance to lead him over into Macedonia to go to Philippi and Thessalonica and down through Greece down to uh, Achaia. So he's reminding them at the very beginning, I intended to come to you. Since I can't get there yet, I'm going to give you this basic instruction on the core doctrines of Christianity. When we come to the last chapter, he says, for this reason, in verse 22, for this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. What reason would that be? If you're looking at your Bibles, and you should be, I want you to point, I want to point out to you what happens and what he says in verses 20 and 21. He says, and so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, to evangelize, evangelizo, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and then he gives us a quote from Isaiah 52, 15, where he says, where it says, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. In the context, that's talking about Gentiles. And then he says, for this reason, that is the reason that is stated and emphasized from that quote from Isaiah chapter 52, which takes us back to his point in verse 16, that he's a minister to the Gentiles. So basically what he's saying is because I've had all these opportunities to minister to serve the word, to serve the gospel to the Gentiles, I have been hindered in coming. So it looks like the focal point of this is he's been too busy in the ministry that he has before him on his second and third missionary journeys to be able to complete his desire to make it to Rome. Verse 23 in Romans 15, 23, Paul says, but now no longer having a place in these parts. This is towards the end of his third missionary journey, and he realizes that he's gone through uh, Asia, he's gone through uh, Macedonia and Achaia twice now, he's completed the task, the churches are established, he's leaving Timothy in charge in Ephesus, he has Titus in Crete, he has uh, sent out other helpers to establish churches in these areas so that now he can finally uh, leave and come uh, come to Rome. Verse 24, he says, when I will come, he says, I have a great desire these many years to come to you whenever I journey to Spain. So Rome isn't the end of his destination. He's really headed to Spain. Rome's just on the way. And so he, that's just a stopover point. He says, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first, if, uh, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So he's headed to Spain, and church tradition has has it that he did make it to Spain between the first and second uh, imprisonments and established the gospel there. There's other legends and stories that he made it may have made it to Britain, may have made it into Gaul, which is modern France, but there's no uh, documentation of that, so it's probably just uh, legendary. 
The fourth thing that we see in the close is that Paul expresses his indebtedness to help all mankind through the preaching of the gospel. What he means by this is that the Lord has given him a mission, and that's his debt. He needs to pay that off by completing his mission. We can apply that to each of us in that we have that same kind of indebtedness in terms of fulfilling the mission that God has given each one of us. And so he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, I have both of these verses up on the screen so that you can see the the introductory verse in Romans 1.14 and the concluding verse, uh, the verse from the conclusion rather in Romans 15.27 on the same screen. He says in verse uh, in chapter 1 verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. That's his objective. He's a debtor because Christ has given him the mission to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's in our chapter in 15, chapter 15, verse 16. The barbarians were called barbarians because the Greeks thought they were the height of civilized people and the foreign languages that the non-Greek spoke sounded to their ears as if someone were just saying bar, 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 bar. So they were called barbarians. That's the origin of that term. In verse 27 of chapter 15, as he goes through his conclusion, he says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Now we have to understand the references there, those pronoun references, who does them refer to and who to whom does they refer to. We have to go back to verse 27 where he says, for it pleased them indeed, and that, uh, excuse me, verse 26, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, that is the Greek churches. What were those Greek churches? This is a test on Acts, by the way. What were those churches that he founded in Macedonia and Achaia? In Macedonia, he founded churches, a church in Philippi and in Thessalonica. Then when you move south, that's where he went to Berea, which is probably still in Macedonia. Then he came to Athens, which is in Achaia. There were a few believers there. They probably started a church there, but he didn't have great success in Athens. And then he went to Corinth. Corinth was also in Achaia. So he says, it pleased those from Macedonia, that would be the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, and Achaia, that would be those in Athens and in Corinth, to make a certain contribution for the poor. So Paul, as we'll see when I go through this a little more in verse by verse, Paul isn't shy about asking people for money. We live in an era today that's kind of funny for a lot of pastors. On the one hand, you have a number of pastors, a number of churches that not only are not shy about asking for money, they may take up two or three collections in the course of any given Sunday morning if they're not getting enough money to pay the bills or whatever they think they need, they they will take up several collections. I've even been in churches where they will have the tape recordings of the pastor available at the back door when you go out so that you can purchase a copy while you are still revved up because you've heard that message that Sunday. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong in and of itself. I think that's a gray area in Scripture. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 8, I believe, or 8 or 9, where he talks about the fact that, that when the other apostles traveled to the churches, they, had, they took their wives and families with them and expected the churches to completely financially support them while they were there. And he says, that is just fine. But he said, I choose not to be a burden to you, and I choose to support myself. That's a personal choice. It comes out of the whole context there in 1 Corinthians chapter 89, dealing with doubtful things, that there are areas that are not absolutes. Some people get the idea that that uh, uh, if a ministry is really grace-oriented, then they're not going to uh, put a price on tapes or books or things like that. And that's just garbage. There's a lot of stronger words for it, but that is garbage. There's nothing biblical about that. It stinks. That is the height of arrogant legalism. There have been numerous people who, because of what, for whatever reason, the only way in which they can, they, they get money is through the sale of their books. How, you know, if you really believe that it is somehow inherently wrong to ask for money for, the, for a published book on the Bible or the Bible itself, and you have ever paid one penny for the Bible you hold in your hand, then you are one of the grossest forms of hypocrites. You really are. If you think it's wrong to ask for money for a tape or for a book, and you paid money for your Bible, or you've ever paid money for a book on Christian life, then, then you're a hypocrite. You're inconsistent. Now, I believe that that's a policy that I want to have in Dean Bible Ministries, that we do not put a price on things. When we had, uh, when when the Spiritual Warfare book was published by a professional publishing house, uh, we ha- we had to go along with the w- the way things were done, and so we had a price on the book. And now we don't put a price on the book because it is published uh, via God's grace provision. But that's not an absolute reality in Scripture. It's not right or wrong. It's the way an individual ministry chooses to, to function. And I've heard people act, act so arrogantly that they think that one is right and one is wrong, and that's just not true at, at all. Uh, I, I, if we had our druthers, we'd never charge tuition for going to seminary. We would never charge to, tuition to go to Camp Arete. You'd never charge tuition to go to any Bible college. But the, rea- the way the world actually works is, is that God does not necessarily provide that way. It was the, the way in which George Mueller of Bristol functioned and ran his orphanage where he would not ask anybody for a dime. And the way God provided for him is truly miraculous. And those are wonderful stories. But that's not what the scripture doesn't mandate. That's the only way to do it. And the apostle Paul didn't do that. When Paul traveled around, he went to these different churches and he said, the, our, our brothers in Jerusalem are going through a famine and they're having a terrible time. And when I come, I'm going to take up a collection. So I want you to start setting aside money now on the first day of every week 
so that when I come, there will be a sizable collection. I'm not just going to hit people up one Sunday with whatever they have in their pockets that day. I want this to be planned. So giving should be something that's planned. Giving should be something that is intentional. And there's nothing wrong with asking for money at a specific time. Now, there are a lot of people that just become uncomfortable with that. I know a lot of pastors, myself included, we're very uncomfortable getting very specific about money because we feel in some sense like we're asking for money for ourselves. And so that, that makes us feel a little bit embarrassed and a little bit uncomfortable. And so a lot of pastors are very uncomfortable about this. We, we have to recognize there's an extreme on one end that wants to take up a collection every three minutes and fleece the sheep every time the sheep show up. And then there's another extreme that says you should never, ever, ever uh, ask for money. And the reality is is that there's a pattern given in the Bible, but it's not a prescriptive pattern. What do I mean by that? I mean, Paul doesn't say, this is the way I do it. You need to do it exactly the same way. Paul made it very clear that, that the apostles traveled under different circumstances and with different requirements and expectations. Uh, from from each individual church in terms of supporting their families, and he took a different approach. One wasn't right, one wasn't wrong. They were both valid. So this is what he did. He had asked for uh, support from these churches financial, to make financial contributions to help the saints in Jerusalem. So that's what he's talking about in verse 27. It says, it pleased them indeed, that is the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, Uh, It pleased them indeed, and they, that would be those in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, are there, that is, they're debtors to the believers uh, in Greece. And then he explains that, saying, for if the Greeks had been partakers of their spiritual things. That goes back to Romans 11, that, that Greeks, Gentiles, are the wild olive branches that are grafted in to the olive tree that has its roots, which is the Abrahamic covenant. So he's recognizing that Gentiles, we are all Gentiles, we benefit from God's covenant to Abraham by virtue of the blessing of salvation. And so because of that, there was a recognition that the Greeks or the Gentiles had a responsibility to give financial support to those in Jerusalem who were going through difficult times because of the economic collapse due to the famine. So Paul expressed that indebtedness to help all mankind, ultimately through the preaching of the gospel. Fifth point that's of similarity between the introduction and conclusion is ministering for reciprocal blessings. And the opening, Romans 1, 11, and 12, Paul said, For I long to be... Uh, to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, that's interesting. He's, we think of a spiritual gift as a gift of pastor, teacher, the gift of evangelist, the gift of giving, the gift of helps, the gift of administration, the gift of service. All of these we think of in terms of spiritual gifts. What he's indicating here is the way he's saying it is he's imparting something from his spiritual gift. He is teaching them. He's instructing them. He wants to minister to them uh, spiritually, so that they may be established, so that he can establish them with a firm foundation. 
In Romans 1.12, he says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith. That statement that I have underlined explains more precisely what he means by imparting to you a spiritual gift. That is, encouraging you so that you can encourage me. Somebody asked me recently, what, is a, what, what do I enjoy the most about teaching? What I enjoy the most about teaching is watching people get it, watching the light bulbs go off, watching it when people finally understand the gospel and grace, watching it when people finally understand what the spiritual life is all about, watching it when people start seeing how that should impact their, their work life, their home life, every other issue that they face in life. When all of a sudden they get it that, that living is not about me, it's not about living here and now. It's not about being a success in my career. It's not about uh, just having an enjoyable time, making a lot of money, having, enjoying my hobbies. It's about serving the Lord. That's what gives me a thrill, is to watch people begin to grow and get excited about their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. And that encourages a pastor when he sees that. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that we're encouraged by a mutual faith when we see those in the, in the congregation get excited and grow and mature and respond to the teaching of the Word. So he says it again in a slightly different way in verse 29 of chapter 15. He says, But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, he's not talking about the full gospel here. Uh, he's talking about fully experiencing the, the rich blessing of the ministry of the gospel to a congregation. And that's the same thing that he's been, he described in the introduction. And then the last area of, of commonality between the introduction and the conclusion is Paul's emphasis on prayer and for praying for one another. In Romans 1, 9, and 10, we read, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, and that would be serving spiritually in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, we, used, we talked about the first part of that verse earlier in talking about his dedication to the gospel. The last part is, he says, without ceasing. And that is something that is continual. It doesn't mean he walked around everywhere he went with his head, head bowed and his eyes closed. He wouldn't have lasted very long. It says that, that this was something that characterized his life most of the time. It's, it's, it, it, grammatically, Greek has two past tenses, aorist tense and, and um, imperfect tense. An aorist tense is like uh, just summarizes something. Whereas, let's say if I'm talking about yesterday, said, I ate yesterday. Now, I didn't eat just one time yesterday. I ate numerous times yesterday. I, In one sense, I ate continuously, but I didn't sit down at the table and never leave. I ate breakfast sometime in the middle of the morning. I probably had a light snack and ate lunch. I ate lunch. In the middle of the afternoon, I had another light snack. I ate dinner, and then I ate again at night. I ate continuously through the day, and that doesn't mean I did not, I just ate without ever leaving the table. 
That's the idea that Paul is communicating here, is it's something we do continuously throughout the day, but not every second of the day. It's something that characterizes our life uh, throughout the day. So he says that we should, he may always made mention or without ceasing, he made mention of them always in his prayers, making requests, that is, toward God, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. So Paul made it a matter of prayer to come to Rome. Now, when he gets to the end of the epistle, in the last four verses, he talks about praying for others again. He says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So we'll talk about other aspects of that verse, but what he's focusing on is that he wants the the believers in Rome to pray for him continuously. And I hope that you pray for me continuously. I know that many people do. I pray for the congregation continuously. This is part of, of what we need to do, and we need to pray for one another. In verse 31, he says what they should be praying for. He gives them a specific prayer request that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. He's already thinking about the fact that he's going to leave and go to Jerusalem, and he's going to meet opposition there. And that's going to be on the way to Rome. And so he tells the Romans that you need to pray for me that that this opposition that I will face uh, will not be serious and I will be delivered from it, which we know that prayer was answered, that Paul was rescued by the Romans when there was a riot in the uh, temple precinct, and then he was taken to Caesarea where he was protected uh, for almost two years before he finally appealed to, to Caesar and made his way to Rome. So he says, you should pray that I'm delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So he's praying two things, protect me from those who oppose me, and that those who are believers, that they will accept the gifts that I'm bringing to them, and that we will have a positive time of ministry to get together. End result, verse 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. If you want me to come to Rome, then you better pray everything goes great while I'm in Jerusalem and Judea so that I can make it eventually to Rome and we can enjoy our time together. And then he closed with a benediction. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Okay, that takes us through to the end of this sort of summary that we've been in for the last uh, couple of lessons, three lessons in total going through the similarities between the introduction and the conclusion. Now, I want to go through this rather rapidly. We've hit most of the high points. We've discussed most of the doctrines. I just haven't hit every single verse going through from uh, verse 14 down through verse 33. So I want to just kind of pull all these little uh, uh, threads together for us so we see how it fits together. As he comes to this conclusion, he says in verse 14, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Those are three descriptions of a mature believer. That first phrase, full of goodness, is an interesting phrase, and it emphasizes their character. They are intrinsically good. The word there 
is agathosune, and it indicates intrinsic goodness. It is comparable or it is a counterpart to righteousness. It's the application of experiential righteousness to life. They are they have received the imputation of righteousness, but it's only as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and we walk by the Spirit that we have experiential righteousness. And so that manifests itself as goodness. We are kind to others. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, he says they're filled with all knowledge. This is the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by the Spirit. The filling by the Spirit means to that the Spirit is the one who's the instrument who fills us with something, and what we're filled with is the Word of God. So this is a great passage as a counterpart to Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16 that we're filled with the Word of God as the content by the Holy Spirit, and the focus point is on giving us knowledge of God and His Word, and the result is that we are able to admonish one another. Now, that doesn't exactly mean to go around correcting everybody and straightening everybody out, but within the framework of our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, we can help one another. And this word, nuthateo, is a word that comes from the mind, not the emotions, that, that first phrase, the N-O-U there is from the Greek noun nous, which is the word for mind. And so it has the idea of warning someone or admonishing them, uh, advising them, correcting them, uh, reminding them, teaching them, and just encouraging them to, to go forward. So it's a, it's a word that covers a, a range of meanings. It's not talking about formal instruction like Didasco, it's, it's, it's two people who are friends, who've got a relationship, and they go out for coffee, and one person's having a tough time dealing with a particular situation in his life, and the other person says, well, you just need to, uh, here's a promise that maybe you can, you can claim, here's uh, some things you need to think about in terms of what the Word of God says, I'm going to pray for you, and hope that you will do X, Y, or Z, as you face, continue to face this problem. Uh, that's the idea here. So we're able to do that because the Word of God is in our soul. Otherwise, we sit there and somebody's going through a tough time and we don't have a clue what to say because the Word of God isn't in our soul. We don't have any verses that we can call to mind. We don't have an understanding of any biblical examples that we can encourage them with. So you have these three areas describing a spiritually mature believer. In verses 15 and 16, Paul goes on to say, Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points. He has really focused on some key issues, knowing that they were a problem in the church in Rome because of the fact that it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and there were some misunderstandings. Part of that had to do with the doubtful things that were covered in chapters uh, 14 and 15, and others had to do with other issues related to understanding justification and sanctification. So he wrote boldly, confidently in those areas, reminding them. And then we have an important phrase. 
He, the key idea here is I, I wrote boldly to you because of the grace of God given to me. But it's really he's saying because of the grace of God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's his emphasis is that God called him to be a minister of the Gentiles. Now that doesn't mean he didn't have any ministry to Jews. Paul always took the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But his primary target audience was among the Gentiles. It's not an either or. It's that his primary target audience was Gentiles, whereas many of the other apostles, specifically Peter, took the gospel to uh, to the Jews. So it says that, I, that his purpose that God called him was to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, uh, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, we went a, t- a lot of time going through this verse, emphasizing these words that are not the normal words we would expect Paul to use. Words like when he says minister of Jesus Christ, it's the word like turgos, which is usually a word that has something to do with a priestly ministry. He It reminds us of what he says at the beginning of this section of Romans. To, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is like a priestly ritual, but the ritual isn't, but it, it, it's not ritual. It's offering ourselves to serve the Lord, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. So he's emphasizing the service of the Lord and serving of the gospel is a priestly ministry. The second word that's translated ministering in the English is not related to the word that's translated minister at the beginning. It's the word herergo, heros, that first part of that word is the word for a temple, serving in a temple. So what Paul is emphasizing here is that since every one of us is a believer priest, we have a responsibility to serve the God in reference to the gospel. Also uses the term offering, prosphora, which is another term related to ministry in the temple. But he's not talking about ritual or liturgy here. He's saying this is what the gospel ministry is. This is the role for every single believer, and it is then pleasant and acceptable to God if we do this. And the last thing he says, it has been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, set apart. Again, the emphasis, as we see all through this section, on the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering the believer to serve the Lord. It doesn't happen just by saying, I'm going to go do it. You have to be in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's skip on to verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he says, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. There are a lot of things that we're excited about in life. Every one of us has hobbies. Every one of us has things related to our, perhaps our work, our employment that, that occupy a lot of our time and attention, as they should because we're working for somebody and we're, we're serving them. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. When we get together in conversations... Our conversation should focus on the Lord. It should focus on the Word. It should focus on things that have eternal value, 
not on the trivial things that so often occupy all of our attention and all of our time. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, I have reason to glory. And the word there for glory is the word for boasting. I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus and the things that pertain to God. That's what we should be talking about. He says, I will, negatively, he says it this way in verse 18, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me. So the focal point is, again, on that which God is doing in and through us in terms of ministry. Verse 19, for him as an apostle, this was accomplished through signs and wonders. Second Corinthians 12.12 12 stated uh, very clearly that the signs of an apostle were performed or accomplished among you with all perseverance. Now, in verse 19, he went on to say that he's going to go to Jerusalem first. Then he's going to, uh, he's had this ministry from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum. So he came very close to Illyricum. Here's a map. He went through Macedonia. He knew the gospel from those he was ministering to in Thessalonica. I mean, Philippi here, Thessalonica here was taking the word up this way and even into Illyricum. Now, on this map, Illyricum goes all the way around the north of Italy. A lot of other maps only put it in this particular area. In terms of the modern uh, modern countries, we look at the area it used to be Yugoslavia. Now it's broken up into different countries. You have up here in the north, this is Italy over here on the left. This is the Adriatic Sea in the middle. Up in the north, you have Austria here, just to the Northwest off the screen would be Switzerland. Here you have Slovenia, just below Hungary. You have Croatia in the brown, then Bosnia and Herzegovina here in the yellow. Uh, to the west of that you have uh, Serbia. South of Serbia you have Montenegro. South of Montenegro, Al Albania. And the yellow down here in the lower right-hand corner is Macedonia. So this is the area that Paul is talking about when he talks about uh, go, uh, the gospel going to Illyricum. So he knows that he's completed, as I pointed out last time, that perfect tense of plerao. He says, I've com completed the gospel, literally. It doesn't say I fully preached the gospel in the Greek. It says I've completely fulfilled the gospel ministry. So he has completed He's established churches. They've sent out missionaries into Macedonia and Achaia and on into Illyricum. So he's ready to move on into new territory. These areas were all dominated by Gentiles. So he quotes a passage from Isaiah uh, 52.15 and 15.21. And in that, uh, in that verse says, So shall he sprinkle many nations, the he there is the servant of Yahweh. Let's go to the, there's the passage. Go back to Isaiah 52, 13. This is the prelude to the great passage of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It's leading up to it. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage will be, was, was marred more than any man. That's referring to when Christ is, is beaten up and, and whipped and tortured before he went to the cross. 
In verse 15, it says, So shall he, that is Christ, sprinkle many nations. This has to do with salvation being available to all nations, not just to Jews, but to the goyim. That's the word for nations there. It's the same word that's translated Gentiles, to the goyim. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. The Gentile kings will see the gospel. They'll hear the gospel. And he goes on to say, And what they had not heard, they shall now consider. So Paul is taking that. We've looked at the different ways in which the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. He's saying this is what we're seeing now. It's an application of that Old Testament passage to what he is doing, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, because of that, he's been hindered. We've already looked at this tonight. He says, for this reason, I've been much hindered from coming to you because he's been occupied with the gospel ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 22, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. So this is just a section where he's saying, I'm going to come visit you on my way to Spain For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now, verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. How is he going to minister to the saints? He's going to bring them financial aid from the churches in in Macedonia and Achaia. We've already addressed that this evening. It pleased those verse 26, from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And this was one of the great things that Paul uh, praised the Macedonians for and the Philippians for because they had uh, given so much to help those in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, in Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 8, this is what Paul says. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you by the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, so they're in the midst of suffering and opposition. We know there's a lot of opposition in Thessalonica to the gospel. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, that is the joy in combination with the poverty. The Macedonians weren't giving out of their affluence They were giving out of their empty pockets. They were giving from their poverty, from what little they had. Paul says in in the midst of affliction, hostility, they had such joy in the gospel that they gave out of their poverty and the riches of their liberality. And 2 Corinthians 8.3 goes on to say, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. So he praises them in 2 Corinthians for their generosity in giving to those in Jerusalem. In verse 28, let me see, let's just move on. Verse 28, Romans fifteen twenty-eight. Paul says, Therefore... When I have performed this task of taking the financial aid to Israel and sealed them this fruit, that he refers to that offering as the fruit of their the ministry of those in Achaia and Macedonia. When I have 
perform this and seal to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. We've already talked about that. Now, then he closes in verses 30 uh, down through 33. And we've already talked about that as well. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together, and that means to come together and work diligently together. The ministry in the local church isn't 98% the pastor and 2% the deacons and everybody else rides along. It is everybody working together. I think we do a great job. We can always do better. But so many people in this congregation are involved in one way or another, helping out in prep school, helping out with planning different functions, many people praying, doing different things, and that's how it needs to be in a a local church. But we always need to work together. It's part of the ministry of the body of Christ uh, to one another. And he specifically calls upon them to pray for him in reference to his trip to Jerusalem, that things would go well there, and eventually he would come and join them in Rome. And he concludes then in verse 33, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So we'll stop there. Next time, come back and look at chapter 16. That's another one of those chapters that people have difficulty with, along with the genealogies. Who in the world are all these people that Paul gives a shout-out to as he goes through uh, the close? A long chapter. We're used to short statements at the end of some of the other epistles where he says something to somebody, but there's a whole list here. And God the Holy Spirit has thought that it's important for us to have this preserved for our edification in some way. So it will be interesting as we study through the last chapter of Romans. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, come to grips with the priorities in our spiritual life, that above everything else, we need to have our relationship with you as a priority. We need to live and have our work as much as possible within an area where we have good Bible teaching and we have a strong, solid foundation of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and where we know that that uh, we can be fed, that that's the most important thing, where we can serve you well within that body of Christ and that we need to carry that mission with us into whatever sphere of employment we might have, uh, not to be a distraction at the workplace, but that we might utilize opportunities when we can to serving you, knowing that in our employment we serve you and not just our human employment. We need to have a more robust view of of our ambassadorship into this world. And we pray that we will do so, and God the Holy Spirit will direct us in that way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.